Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 14 and 15 this morning. And I don't know about you, but it feels to me like this is a historic morning in some sense. Making a, a big transition like this, going from one service to two services, and we've done it in the past, um, about nine years ago, I think I mentioned earlier, but uh, it just felt like this was a Sunday where uh, we might need to be reminded, um, refreshed, recalibrated as things are changing in the life of our church, uh, just to get back to what we're really all about. And so God brought this passage to my mind. This was a passage that I preached um, when we started the church some 23 years ago. This was also a a passage I preached from when we were celebrating our 10th anniversary. I did a series of six sermons uh, from the the previous 10 years, the, the sermons that I felt like had made the greatest impact in the life of our church and my life personally, and this was one of those texts. And so it just seemed like an appropriate text for us to look at this morning as we transition to a new chapter in the life of our church. So read it with me, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Follow along there in your Bibles as I read. Paul writes, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. God, thank you for allowing us the privilege of being in your, of being a part of your house today. Um, Lord, we know that you are the one and the only one true God. You're the only living God. And Lord, you've given us your truth which is contained in this book that we have before us. And so as we consider what Paul told Timothy this morning about what the church is to be and to do, the kind of church that you want, the kind of church that you bless, the kind of church that you use, Lord, I pray that we would be attentive to what you'd have to say to us so that we could be who you want us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, like many of you, I grew up in the church. I've been going to church literally ever since I was born, except for an occasional week when I've been sick or out of town. There's never been a Sunday that I've not been at church. And I've got a lot lot of vivid memories from all the time I've spent at church, particularly when I was a kid, like my first Christmas pageant when I had a very simple little line I was just supposed to say, Jesus is the king, and so my mom coached me and said, now, Kenny, make sure you say it really loud, because everybody needs to know that Jesus is the king, and little did she know that they were going to actually have microphones, and so I did exactly what I was told, and I said it very loud, Jesus is the king, and about blew out the sound system in the church with this microphone that they stuck in front of my little face. I remember my first and last solo in the children's choir. Um, I remember throwing up in my dad's hat because I couldn't make it to the bathroom in time. 
I remember putting gum on the pastor's chair during confirmation class, a bunch of mischievous little boys in junior high, um, overdosing on red punch and cookies at the potluck suppers, and according to my mom, being responsible for driving at least one Sunday school teacher into early retirement. Speaking of my mom, one thing I found out at an early age was there was a right way and a wrong way to act at church. And whenever I talked or squirmed during the service, she would very discreetly reach over and dig her fingernails into my leg. And anybody who was sitting behind me wondered why I just shot straight up in my seat. And uh, I joke with my mom that I still have scars on my leg to prove her abuse, how she abused me when I was a child. But needless to say, I learned how to behave myself when I was at church. And I think knowing how to behave ourselves at church really comes down to knowing what the church is for and why we're there in the first place. Years ago, I read a book called Onward Christian Soldiers, and I came across this very compelling quote. A high proportion of people who go to church have forgotten what it is all for. Week by week, they attend services in a special building and go through their particular time-honored routine, but give little thought to the purpose of what they're doing. The Bible talks about the bride of Christ, but the church today seems more like a ragged Cinderella. The church needs to reaffirm the non-negotiable, essential elements that God designed for it to be committed to, end quote. Well, no single verse of Scripture explains the essential elements of a church more simply and succinctly than 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. And this verse was originally addressed to Timothy, who was overseeing the local church in Ephesus that Paul had planted, and that church was having some problems, and Paul left Timothy there to set things in order, and Paul's plan was to come back and visit Timothy as quickly as possible, but he wasn't sure if or when he'd ever make it back. So in the meantime, he sent Timothy a letter with some important instructions that in his mind just couldn't wait. And in this letter, 1 Timothy and his second letter to Timothy, we know as 2 Timothy and his letter to Titus, are really the best instruction manual for the church that has ever been written. Theologians call it the pastoral epistles. First and Second Timothy and Titus. And, and thousands of books and articles have been written uh, about the church. Countless conferences and, and, and seminars have been given on how to develop and run a church. But none of them even begin to compare with the simplicity and clarity of what's contained in the pastoral epistles. They explain the basic principles and practices that God's people should follow when they gather together. In other words, how we should behave in God's house. It's one of the reasons why First and Second Timothy and Titus were some of the first books that I went through with our church in the early years because I wanted us to lay a, a strong foundation for who we would be as a church. Plus, I figured I'd only be a young pastor once and I wanted to glean from what Paul was telling his young disciple that he was mentoring, Timothy. But this verse, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, I think summarizes the entire theme of the pastoral epistles. Notice what he says, in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. 
That word conduct, that word anastrophe that we've been learning about in 1 Peter, it's the word for behavior or our conduct or our lifestyle. And Paul wasn't just telling Timothy how he should behave as a pastor, but how the whole church in Ephesus was supposed to behave. In other words, this is how a local assembly of believers is to act. And he refers to to them as the household of God. I'm writing so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. And again, the word there in the original is oikos, which is simple, simply means house, a building, a, a dwelling place. And so we talk about uh, God's house, and, and typically we think of the, when we think of that term, God's house, the picture that might come into our minds is, is, is an old deacon scolding a little boy who's running down the hall at church, and he says, don't run in God's house, son. But we need to understand that when the Bible talks about God's house, it's not referring to a building, but to believers in whom God's spirit dwells. We, as the body of Christ, are the sanctuary of God. In the Old Testament, God dwelt in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. But in the New Testament, God dwells in the church. Paul made this clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. He said, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And he was referring not individually, he was referring corporately to that entire church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 6, 16, he said, for we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then look back at Ephesians for a second, just back a few pages to the left. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Paul is using similar language here in his letter that he originally wrote to the church in Ephesus. This was not new, um, what he was writing to Timothy. They had already heard this before. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit." Back in 1 Timothy 3, earlier in that chapter, Paul used the same word household to describe a family in the qualifications of, of an elder. In verse 4, he says he must manage his household well, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And again, he repeats that for the qualifications of deacons, that, that they must be good managers of their children and their own households. And so what's implied here is that we who are part of the church, God's house, are really God's family. God is our father. We are his children. And other Christians are our brothers and sisters. In fact, look at chapter 5. Paul tells us how we should relate to one another. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, this is verse 1 of chapter 5, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. 
So we are part of God's family. At least those of us who, by faith, have received Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. John 1.12 says, but as many as received Jesus Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. The point is this, all of us have been born or were born into a family, an earthly family. I was born into the Ramey family. But if we want to be part of God's family, we need to be born again. We need to be born spiritually. And I say that because a lot of people think that all it takes to be part of the family of God is to go to church. But just because a person is a member of the Baptist church or the Methodist church or even a a Bible church, that doesn't automatically make them a member of God's family. Just because you're here at church today doesn't necessarily mean you're a Christian. You may have gone to church your entire life like me, but that doesn't make you or me or anyone else a Christian. And here in the South, you know, it seems like Everyone goes to church and everyone considers themselves a Christian. And I often ask people when I get into conversations with them and they give some indication that perhaps they are a a Christian. And so I ask them, well, when did you become a Christian? And they respond by telling me what church they grew up in or how long they have been going to their particular church or, or when they got baptized. And I was like, well, uh, no, Uh, what I'm asking is when were you born again? And that's when I usually get the deer in the headlights. Like, what are you talking about? Let me ask you that same question. Have you been born again? Do you know for sure that when you die, God is going to welcome you into heaven as one of his children? I ask that because I can't think of a greater tragedy for, for them or someone to, to go to church their entire lives, to go through life singing, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God, and then find out after it's too late that they really weren't. And so being part of God's family is an unspeakable privilege, but it also carries with it a huge responsibility. Because we must uphold God's reputation. We represent him as his children. And as individual members of God's family, God dwells in us. And whenever we assemble together corporately for worship and fellowship, God dwells among us. And so consequently, we need to maintain the testimony of God. Most importantly, his honor and his word. We need to conduct ourselves and behave ourselves in a way that God is honored and his word is held high for all to see. And that's essentially what Paul said when he elaborated on this idea of the household of God. And notice he used two descriptive phrases that simply yet profoundly explain the true nature of the church. Look at verse 15. I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Here it is, number one, which is the church of the living God, and number two, the pillar and support of the truth. 
All that the church is to be, all that the church is to do, I think is summarized in those two phrases. Those two phrases define the two primary functions of the church. We have a sacred duty to honor the living God and to hold up his living word. This is the mission of the church in capsule form. This is why we exist as a church. So let's look at these two phrases this morning. And again, I want you to see them as two fundamental functions of the church. This is why we are here this morning. This is why we're here every Sunday morning. Number one, to honor God's worth, and number two, to hold up God's word. Let's look first of all at what it means to honor God's worth. He says, I want you to know how you should conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. That word church is the word ecclesia, which literally means called out ones. It's used over a hundred times throughout the New Testament to refer to those who have been called out by God from this world as his own to worship him and to witness for him. And I think it's important that we don't get confused about what this word church means because it's used in a lot of different contexts. Like, well, what church do you go to? And we say, well, I go to Lakeside Bible Church. Or, or where is your church located? Well, it's over there on Freeport Drive, 18940 Freeport Drive, over there behind Dollar General, right? Uh, or as I've heard people come in and they go, wow, what a pretty church. Well, we need to be reminded this morning that the church isn't a physical location. It's not a a, a material facility. It's a spiritual assembly of people who are dedicated to honoring and glorifying God with their lives. This building is not the church. We are. The, The third phase worship center and Children's Center that we're hoping and praying to be able to build someday. That's not the church. We are. The, the, the steel and the, the brick and the stucco is simply a place where we can worship and, and fellowship and be equipped to serve the Lord together as his people. Those early years when we uh, planted Lakeside, we were a church in a box or a church in a trailer. And really everything we owned as a church fit into this trailer which we still keep out back here. And, and so we would roll up to Montgomery Elementary School, which, by the way, was the only elementary school in town at the time. Shows you how this community is just exploding. I think there's now six or seven elementary schools. We'd roll up there, and we'd open up the back gates of that trailer, and we'd load everything out and set up church, and then we'd put it all back in when it was all over and kept doing that. And then we did it over here at the, the KOA campground, which used to be Haven's Landing. It was basically a, a square dance hall. And, uh, and, and what I loved about that, even though it was, it was hard and it was a lot of work and people had to get there really early to set up and tear down and um, guys would come to church sweaty because they had just set up to church so we could be there and, and meet. And, and yet it was so clear to everybody as you're sitting there in the cafetorium at an elementary school or standing in, sitting in a dance hall where you could smell the alcohol and cigarettes from the night before, you were reminded this isn't the church. We're the church. And it was very easy to, to, to it was very easy for me to just continue to remind people, right, what the church is. 
Notice he says, which is the church of the living God. The living God. In other words, the church belongs to God. It's the church of God. It's, it's God's church. The Father designed it. The Son purchased it. The Spirit sealed it and empowers it. And because we belong to him, that gives him every right to tell us how we should behave at church. And first and foremost, in light of this phrase, the church of the living God, we should behave reverently towards him. The phrase, the living God, is used throughout Scripture to describe God as a holy and awesome God who deserves to be worshipped with reverence and awe. Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 26, the Israelites were standing at the foot of Mount Sinai having just received the Ten Commandments and they were trembling and they said this, for who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? How are we still alive? Psalm 42, verse 1, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 84, verse 1, how lovely are thy dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for for joy to the living God. Jeremiah 10, 10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. And then Hebrews 10, 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So when Paul used this term, the church of the living God, he was saying that the church is a place where God is to be worshiped with fear and reverence. And so when we come together as a church, we need to be pursuing him and longing for intimacy with him. We need to be praising him and prizing him and adoring him and seeking to honor him and to glorify him because of who he is and what he's done for us. John Piper has written many books. One of the more obscure ones is called God's Passion for His Glory. Listen to what Piper says about church on Sunday morning. He said, when we come to worship on Sunday morning, we ought to come hungry for God. God is mightily honored when people know that they will die of hunger and thirst unless they have God. Nothing makes God more supreme, more central in worship than when a people are utterly persuaded that nothing, not money or prestige or leisure or family or job or health or sports or toys or friends, nothing is going to bring satisfaction to their sinful, guilty, aching hearts besides God. This conviction, Piper says, breathes a people who go hard after God on Sunday morning. They're not confused about why they're in the worship service. They do not view songs and prayers and sermons as mere traditions or mere duties. They see them as means of getting to God or God getting to them for more of his fullness, no matter how painful that may be for sinners in the short run. 
Nothing keeps God at the center of worship like the biblical conviction that the essence of worship is deep, heartfelt satisfaction in him and the conviction that the trembling pursuit of that satisfaction is why we're together. Is that why you're here today? Is that why you came today? Because you are convinced that God is the only one who can satisfy your soul. That he is the key to your happiness and joy and meaning in life. Unfortunately, this is not what you experience when you walk into a lot of churches today. And there's typically two extremes. Um, You walk into some Churches is like walking into a morgue. They're cold, they're dark. People are going through their formal rituals with little or no emotion. Stand up, sit down, kneel down, repeat these words after me. They're stuck in some old stuffy traditions of past generations. And they're just content to keep doing things the way they always have. Even though it's completely irrelevant to where people are at in this generation. And I think that's why a lot of people are turned off by traditional denominational-like churches. The other extreme is you can walk into other types of churches and it's like walking into the mall. They're warm, they're bright, people are hanging out sipping lattes and cappuccinos and There's food courts and workout facilities and fountains and waterfalls and a McDonald's playland for the kiddos. And it's really just church casual. People are encouraged to come as they are, come as you are. And I think the main goal is just to project a comfortable, non-threatening atmosphere where people can just come out and hang, hang out with friends and it's just real casual, you know, kicking back and just taking in the show. No pews, no pulpits, no long sermons, lots of music, lots of media, short, positive pep talks. I mean, the, what, what they're going for is, is, is really being user-friendly. I think that's why so many people are attracted to what are referred to as seeker-sensitive type churches, because they're giving people exactly what they want, a relaxed, non confrontive, entertaining experience that makes them feel good about themselves. But beloved, listen, the church isn't a place where people go to be entertained. It's a place where God is to be worshiped in spirit and in truth. John 4, 23, Jesus said, To the woman at the well, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Listen, let's not confuse who the real seeker is. It's not the the person coming in maybe seeking out what church might have for them. We need to be sensitive to first-time visitors, obviously, but 
We need to be sensitive to the fact that God is seeking true worshipers who desire to praise and adore him and know him more intimately. And I think the whole problem with this seeker-sensitive movement is it focuses on what people want rather than what God wants. It's man-centered, not God-centered. Listen, the, the, the church exists for God, not us. This is God's house. And when we come to church, we need to realize we're coming into the presence of a holy God. And frankly, that could be a very frightening thing. Ananias and Sapphira, you remember that story in Acts chapter 5 where they were in church and they lied about some offering that they gave and God just killed them on the, on the spot. Just, they, they, they were struck dead. Divine church discipline. And they, they, they kind of drug them out the door and went on with their worship service. And it says in Acts chapter 5, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard about it. You think? The early church wasn't very user-friendly or seeker-sensitive. Now, don't, under, don't misunderstand me here. I'm, I think when an unbeliever walks into our church, they should feel warmly welcomed and loved. We're always talking about, man, being, being hospitable, having a love for strangers and, and, and making them feel um, uh, received here. But they shouldn't really feel that comfortable or at home. In fact, they should feel out of place. They, they should feel convicted and, and think to themselves, you know, I have never experienced anything like this before in my life. That's the problem with churches that try to make the atmosphere feel just like other places in the world. And unbelievers can walk in and they can, they can feel right at home. It's like, oh, I kind of feel like I'm at the mall. I kind of feel like I'm at the, the, the restaurant on Friday night or wherever I'm at, you know. Um, and, and they're not under conviction. When Paul was talking about or describing the, the kind of worship service um, that the church in Corinth should, should be striving for, in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 24, he says, an unbeliever is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so he will fall on his face and worship God declaring that God is certainly among you. That's how God designed the church to reach unbelievers. And so the best way for us to reach the lost in our community is to be a group of people who don't just mindlessly and emotionlessly follow strict traditions and, and go through our little routine on Sunday morning. Nor should we be a group of people who, who, who pragmatically and irreverently try to attract the, the lost with all sorts of marketing methods and techniques and entertain them with a bunch of music and media. We need to be a group of people who come together to reverently worship and honor the living God. So people have this overwhelming sense that when they come here, they are in the presence of God. So we need to honor God's worth. That's the first reason why we gather together as a church. 
But there's a second fundamental function that we as a church must fulfill if we want to reach unbelievers. We want to be the kind of church that God wants and, and blesses and uses, and that is we need to hold up God's word. We need to hold up God's word. Notice again, verse 15. He says, I want you to know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Here it is, second phrase, the pillar and support of the truth. The pillar and support of the truth. What is the purpose of a pillar? A pillar is there to hold something up, to to keep it from falling. And the imagery that Paul used here may have been a reference to the temple uh, of the goddess uh, Diana, which towered above the city of Ephesus, where this church was located, and and people came from all the known world to to worship this false god there in that city. In fact, the temple was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and one of the unique features of this magnificent structure was 127 gold-plated marble pillars that supported the roof. And so Paul perhaps was drawing from that imagery saying that the church is the pillar and support of the truth, literally the ground of the truth, referring to the foundation on which a building rests. Notice that Paul said that the church is the support of the truth, not the source of the truth. That's where the church went off the rails there and why it needed a reformation because the Pope became the source of the truth. The, the, the Vatican councils became the, the source of truth. No, God is the source of all truth. And the church simply has the responsibility of proclaiming and protecting that truth that God has revealed once and for all to us through his word. I love how Jude says it in Jude, chapter, or Jude verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Listen, it's not our job to come up with the message, but to faithfully deliver it to those who need to hear it. I'm just the mailman. I just just pick up the mail at the headquarters, and I just get it to you, to your mailbox, without losing something along the way. Or I'm just like a server, a waiter, a waiter at a restaurant. My job is just to get the food from the, the kitchen, right, to your table, to your, you know, play on, that plate of food to your table, without doctoring it up along the way. Have you ever seen a, a waiter server do that? You know, he gets the food, you know, from the window. looks like, man, that chef, he's not on his game today. I've got to fix this up. I'm going to change this around here, put this over here, and then bring, like he fixed your meal for you on the way. No, that's not waiters. Do we? Our job is just to get it there to you. So he says the church is the pillar and support of the truth. The, the, the truth there, I think, is the, the content of the Christian faith as recorded in Scripture. It's summed up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look at the next verse, verse 16. Paul includes this confessional statement that may have been used back then. He says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness, who he who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Who is he referring to there? 
It's referring to Jesus Christ. And so the gospel is the essential truth that the church must uphold and proclaim and protect. And Paul was very passionate about the truth of God's word. He made sure that that Timothy understood his responsibility as a pastor to uphold the truth. And that's why over and over and over again he emphasized the pastoral priority of proclaiming and protecting the word of God. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Chapter 5, verse 17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, uh, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me and the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, be diligent, Timothy, to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And then in chapter 3, verse 15, he reminded Timothy that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And then he goes on, he says, I solemnly charge you, Timothy. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. We live in that day where people have turned their ears away from the truth, or as Isaiah 59, 14 talks about, we live in a day where truth has fallen in the streets. And you know that few in our world today acknowledge the uh, existence of absolute truth. And so consequently, there's no standard of right and wrong. Everyone can do whatever they want. And anyone who stands up for the truth or holds up the truth is considered unloving or judgmental or intolerant. Why? Because people don't want to hear the truth. They ignore it. They suppress it. They misrepresent it. They deny it. They reject it. And that's all the more reason why we as a church must hold up what God has said in his word. And so when the world says abortion is a woman's choice, we stand up and say, no, God's word says that it's murder. Because life starts at the moment of conception. And when the world says that homosexuality is hereditary, it's just simply an alternative lifestyle, we must stand up and say, no, God says it's a sinful lifestyle that perverts the natural affection that God created between a man and a woman. When the world says that gender identity is a, is a person's you know, own opinion or, or choice, we again stand and say, no, God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. What's even worse, we live in a day where truth is being attacked, not just by the world, but also by the church. Again, we're living in those times 
about which Paul warned Timothy in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith. That Christians, Christians, so-called Christians would fall away from the truth. Some of you who follow uh, Ligonier Ministries, R.C. Sproul's ministry, you probably have seen the, the latest state of theology survey that they've just released every two years. They take uh, the kind of the theological temperature of the United States and they interview people. They get people to fill out this survey, uh, people on the street, unbelievers, and then in churches and find out what they really believe. And this year's results reveal widespread confusion about some of the core truths of Scripture. For example, nearly half of evangelicals, and again, it's a broad definition of evangelicals if you believe in Jesus and that he's the only way to get to heaven. That could include a lot of people. But nearly half, 50% of evangelicals, agreed that God learns and adapts to different circumstances, which is in stark contrast to the doctrine of unchanging, that God is unchanging, he's immutable. 65% of evangelicals agreed that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. You okay with that? No. It denies the doctrine of original sin, total depravity, and with it the very reason people need salvation in the first place. Some 56 evangelicals, 56% of evangelicals agreed with the idea that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Judaism and Islam. In contrast to what Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. I think the most shocking result had to do with the topic of Christ's divinity. And when asked whether they agreed that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God, 43% of American evangelicals said yes. He's a great teacher, but he's not God. And I think this confusion not just outside the church, but inside the church, reveals a lack of clear, faithful teaching of this book right here. And so as the truth crumbles all around us, we need to stand strong and tall for the truth of God's word like a lone pillar surrounded by rubble. You say, how do, I, how do we do that practically? How do we uphold the truth of God's word? Well, if you're a pastor, oh, that's me. If you're a pastor, this is how you can uphold the truth of God's word. And I'll never forget reading this book, again, years ago, called Power Preaching for Church Growth, which was kind of a sarcastic title in the church growth, church growth era when everyone's saying, hey, this is how you build a church, this is how you grow your church. And this guy says, I'll tell you how to grow a church, preach the Bible. Listen to what he says. So what's the preacher to do in an age of fluff preaching, psychologized content, self-helpism, feel-good messages, and biblical illiteracy? You resist and you fight. You stand against the trend. You swim against the tide. You go to battle for biblical content and biblical truth. You refuse to be reluctant to preach doctrine. You decline to be an ear tickler. You revolt against the tendency to downplay doctrine. You rebel against anemic, watered-down exposition. You know that people can't survive spiritually on gruel, so you labor hard to prepare, to prepare well-balanced, high-calorie, high-protein meals that will feed the soul. 
Your ultimate concern is not what people say or what they think. You don't care what the climate of the market is or what people say that they want. You have a higher calling than felt need sermonizing that aims at satisfying the customer. Your call is to please the creator of heaven and earth, the Lord of lords. Your summons is to faithful stewardship. Your vocation is to declare and teach the powerful content of the whole counsel of God. The Bible calls you to preach sound, solid, firm, beautiful content, content that people must have to live before a holy God. No concessions, no negotiations, no politicking, just straight, 100% pure, genuine, 16 ounces of the pound, biblical truth. That's what you must proclaim. Amen? That's what I can do to uphold the truth of God's word. What about you? What can you do to uphold the truth of God's word? This is from our friend Donald Whitney in his book, Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church. He said this, in defiance of the world's wisdom that says no one wants to come to church and hear sermons, in defiance of the church marketing strategy that questions the value of traditional preaching and would rather replace it with something more visually stimulating, you should attend a church where you consistently hear biblical preaching. You need to avoid a church where the preaching does not clearly come from the Bible. Sometimes the preacher announces a text but never really comes back to it and or makes only passing references to any other verses from the Bible. The kind of church you want to be a part of is one where when the Bible is read at the beginning of the sermon, you can be confident that what follows will be built on it. Keep your distance from a church that minimizes preaching or substitutes other things for it. Whenever a church allows anything else, drama, ceremony, music, video, concert, pageant, dance, to compromise the primacy of the message preached, it's a sign that it has lost confidence in the preaching of God's word. He says, you don't need a church like this, regardless of how good its other programs are, or how many friends you have there, or how well your children like it, remember that it is God's word that changes hearts and lives He said, make sure your family will consistently hear what will save them and build them up. You're doing what you need to be doing, which is you're here. And so we need to honor God's worth. We need to hold up his word. And and by the way, these are are one and the same. They go hand in hand. We, we honor God by holding up his word, and when we hold up God's word, he's honored. Simply put, we must be a God-centered, Bible-based church. A God-centered, Bible-based church, which is the kind of church that God wants It's the kind of church God blesses and it's the kind of church that God uses. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the work that you have been accomplishing in the life of this church all these years. This is your church, not my church, not our church. This is your church. And you get all the glory for anything that has been accomplished. And Lord, we just have the sense that you've got a lot more in store for us in the future. And so we just want to be faithful to maintain a high view of you and a high view of your word. And as we do that, we're confident that you will bless us and you will use us to bring many others to Christ 
and to help us all continue to grow in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.